Okay, Tzoraim um, Tovim. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, today, uh, we need a... Ten- no, don't need a machzor. You need a Tanakh. But I'm going to actually give out a sheets which contain most of what you need. But the first part, uh, it's good to have a Tanakh, uh, the first part, um, which everybody has. You always carry a Tanakh in your... In your, in your book bag or your uh, bag. If you ever get stuck somewhere, get stuck on the train, what else are you going to do? Take out a Tanakh. Okay. Um, okay, good afternoon. For, for those who've never taken a class with me, my name is uh, Natty Helfgott, Nathaniel Helfgott. I'm a teacher at a uh, number of uh, Jewish institutions, including Drisha. And it's always, uh, it's always a pleasure uh, to teach, and especially right before Rosh Hashanah. Uh, this year I wanted to talk about a ritual which is extremely popular, especially on the west side, for those who live on the west side. It's happening. Um, we used to live on the west side. We don't anymore, but it's, it's a real happening on, uh, on the, um, in Riverside Park. Uh, all types of uh, different Jews get together on Rosh Hashanah afternoon, and they uh, engage in the ritual of, of Tashlich. Tashlich is... Uh, is one of those things like uh, candle lighting of Hanukkah candles and uh, Pesach Seder that seems to have um, withstood the onslaught of, of, uh, secu- of uh, assimilation in the sense that you probably, if you took a, you know, if you took a poll, you know, very, very high numbers of Jews continue to celebrate the ritual of Tashlich. Some have innovated it in a different way than it was done traditionally. Um, and if you Google on it, you can find all kinds of interesting ways that people do Tashlich today. It's also in Jewish, in Jewish history. Uh, it became um, a uh, kind of catch-all for people uh, to write poetry and write even some popular Israeli songs. Um, there's a number of very famous, for those who know um, Sifrut Ivrit, those who know Hebrew literature, during the Haskalah period, there were some very famous uh, poems written, uh, some very satirical, anti-Hasidic poems uh, written with the title Tashlich. Um, there were poems written by uh, Holocaust survivors with the title Tashlich Abakovner um, in Israel, one of the partisanim. Uh, Tashlich became a kind of catch-all to talk about letting go of all kinds of issues, right? Because it's, it's great. I mean, if you're a psychologist or anything, right? So Tashlich, the idea of letting go, the idea of casting off, I mean, it's just ripe for interpretation. It's ripe for uh, use. It's ripe for uh, writing lyrics. This, there's a, a fellow in Israel, uh, Idan Amadi, who's uh, like, uh, was a, uh, one of the winners of like the uh, Israeli, it's called Kochav Nolad, which is uh, the Israeli-American idol a few years ago and he wrote a very famous uh, song in Israel called Tashlich about getting rid of all your, uh, your fears and hopes and such. So Tashlich has become a very uh, a catch-all phrase that's used in many different ways uh, in terms of Jewish culture today uh, and, and in Israeli society as well. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about, I want to talk about the origins of the actual... Uh, actual ritual as it was practiced uh, in medieval uh, Germany which, where it seems to have gotten uh, really uh, off the ground at least that's the way we think and uh, I want to talk about some of the roots of it 
and uh, some of it is surprising, some of it might be disturbing, uh, but that's life, you know, <laughs> if you want to be honest to the, some of the sources. That doesn't mean that you can't enjoy Tashlich, um, and uh, if you do Tashlich, there are some Jews that don't do Tashlich, we'll talk a little bit about that at the end, but uh, it is, if we're going to look at some of the sources, it's, it's worthwhile uh, to look at it. So first, before I give out my, the sources, I want to look at, um, I want to look at some issues in Tanakh that I think may be in the very, very, very background of, of what's going on, and then you'll see that maybe it does come to the fore as well. Again, for those who are not familiar, the, the, the current custom of Tashlich uh, in most traditional settings is that on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, after in the afternoon sometime, and we'll talk a little bit about, there's two different um, traditions. One is that you do it right after the meal, and one is that you do it between Mincha and Marev. There's actually two different traditions, whether to do it between the evening service and the, af- and the, uh, the afternoon service and the evening service. And uh, one goes to, the, to a body of water, preferably a river with fish, um, and one says a number of verses from the book of Micha, from the book of Micah, one of the twelve small prophets. The specific verse... Mi el chamocha no seavon over alfesha. Who is like you, God, who carries burdens and carries uh, sin? It's based on the thirteen principles of mercy. It's basically a takeoff on the verses in the Torah. Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachum v'Chanun, Erech Apayim, Rav Chesed v'Emet. What we repeat over and over again on Yom Kippur. So, who is? There's a number of times in the Bible where there is what we would call a kind of takeoff on the thirteen principles. Um, Moses uses the 13 principles to argue with God to save the Jewish people after the sin of the golden calf. Jonah, remember when he talks to God about why God hasn't destroyed Nineveh, uses the 13 principles. And this is another example of a riff on the 13 principles, to use the music term. It's a riff on that. Who God does not hold on to his anger because he is looking for chesed, for rachamim, for mercy. Yashuv yirachameinu, he will once again return and he will have mercy. Yichbo shavonoteinu, he will put down his sins. V'tashlich b'mitzulot yam kol chatotam. And he will cast away all their sins into the depths of the sea. That's the verse in the book of Micha, in the book of Micah. And therefore, parakei. And therefore, Pasuk Zayin? Parak I'm sorry. Sorry, thank you. Okay, if you want to like to look at it, in the book of Micah. Thank you. Page one, uh, one three five three, thirteen fifty three. Who is like you, God? Yashuv And you will hurl or 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 cast all our sins. Into, into the sea, but not just the sea, into the depths of the sea. Very interesting term, the Mitsulot Yam, into the depths of the sea. And therefore, the custom is based on this, is associated with casting off one's sins into the sea. In some communities, not only do they just go to the body of water and actually uh, say these words, but you also bring food, crumbs of bread. And you cast it into the sea. Some people shake out their uh, pockets 
There's a whole kind of elaborate ritual depending on what community you're from. So, before we get to the sources I'd like to look at, which specifically address what we call Tashlich, I think it's important to recognize that this whole business of going by the sea and praying is, may have more to it than meets the eye, even prior to talking about Rosh Hashanah and even prior to talking about casting off sins, there seems to be, in many cultures and including in the Tanakh, an association, a very ancient association of God and the sea, of finding God near the water. Okay? Let's just take a quick look at a couple of them. First of all, if we just start from the beginning of the Tanakh. The beginning of the Tanakh, the beginning of Genesis, begins with a very strange verse, which requires its own exegesis. The Bible begins, not really at the beginning, because it, imp it implies that there is something there. Look at verse 1, page 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, or in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and there was deep over the, and there was uh, darkness over the deep. And there was the spirit of God was sweeping over the water. Now, the Bible hasn't said that God created the water, and yet there's an implication that there's the water, this this primordial soup that's there. Maybe because the Bible hasn't told us everything. The Bible's not interested in telling us every single detail of how the world came into being. It mo is more interested in telling us once there was this primordial mass, God shaped it and fashioned it. Maybe he created it, maybe he didn't. That's a philosophical debate. Um, but God was hovering over the water. So it's very interesting, this idea of God hovering over the water is kind of the first time that we meet God in the Bible. God is hovering over the water and... This is, there's a great deep, there's a pnei to home. Now, of course, um, anyone who's ever studied um, the ancient, you know, Near Eastern <coughs> creation myths knows that, you know, that's a big deal in the ancient creation myth, right? There was Tiamat, there was the, 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 the um, you know, the sea, the sea gods, and out of that came the gods. And obviously the Bible is fighting, polemicizing, we don't believe in that kind of a myth, a myth. But it's certainly trying to demythologize certain things. But at the same time, it's associating HaKadosh Baruch Hu God around uh, the water. Let's take another couple of interesting examples. Take a look in, if we look in chapter 21 of the book of Breshit, of Genesis. When, which we're going to read on Rosh Hashanah, interestingly enough. When Sarah... Um, chases out Hagar from the house and she runs and and she sees a well. Um, I'm sorry, uh, in the first time where she cho where uh, take a look back in chapter what was it, chapter 16? Yes, in chapter 16. When she first leaves, on page 27 and 28. And so she is chased out. Verse 6. 
ויאמר אברהם אל שרה הנה שפחתך בידיך סילחתו ותענה השרה ותברח מפניה she runs away וימצאה מלאך אדוני על עין המים במדבר על עין בדרך שור so she goes to this עין המים she goes to this well of water and that's where she has a vision of God and she goes there and she sees the angel and in verse 13 ותקרא שם אדוני הדובר לאתה אל רעי כי אמרה גם הלום ראיתי אחרי רועי על כן קרא לה באר באר לחי רועי this is the באר where I saw the living God so it's very interesting that The, the, the experience that she has is an experience of seeing God by the well. And it's interesting, of course, that when we meet Isaac, remember when Rivka comes back from Eliezer has brought Rivka, uh, the Evid, excuse me, has brought Rivka back from Aram Naraim, from the Middle East, from Mesopotamia. So we meet Isaac who's hanging around Be'er Lachai Ro'i. If you turn to chapter... 20, where is it? 4. 24, page 46. And page 47. And Isaac had just come back from hanging out at Be'er Lachai Ro'i. It's very interesting. That's where Isaac chooses to hang out when he has free time. He chooses to hang out in this Be'er Lachai Ro'i. And of course, when we look at um, other, other examples, take a look at the book of Yechezkel. Yechezkel, when he has this great vision, Ezekiel, when he has this great vision, it happens often around Nahar Kvar, around the river of Kvar. Right? In verse 1, When I was on by the river of Kvar, the heavens opened and I saw visions of God. Well, that's very interesting. Somehow, Bidafka, it's important for us to know that he ha- saw his great vision of God around when he was contemplating meditating, whatever term you want to use, around the, the, the river of Kvar. And so there is something interesting going on in the Bible, we could bring many other proofs, about people having some sort of religious experiences around the river. It was a place where you could connect, or around water, where you connected more. There are some interpreters, for example, who say the very famous uh, psalm, that we say, Al Naharot Bavel, Sham Yashavnu Gambachinu, Bizachrenu at Sion. Why Bidafka around Naharot Bavel? Why aren't they uh, you know hanging out in the cities of Bavel? What's Al Naharot Bavel, Sham Yashavnu, on the rivers of Babylon we sat? And some have connected it as well, that they was engaging in prayer. They were engaging in trying to connect to God, and that this was seen as part of Um, an attempt to connect to the Rabboni Shalom. Now, either it's because psychologically, when you look at the water, it's very uh, meditative, or you can, soothing, or it's because you see certain things in the water, or because there was a belief rooted in that God, this was the very first thing that God created in history, and God's, uh, God's energy 
was found. We all know that in the ancient Near Eastern world, um, the idea that there were the gods of the sea that were more powerful than all the other gods is a very major theme. So much so that as many people have pointed out, if you look in, cre- in the creation story, right, the Bible goes out of its way of all the things the Bible tells us that God created. It says he created the Taninim HaGdolim. It doesn't say every single detail. You know what I'm talking about, right? Go back to Genesis. Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, when it talks about the various things that God created, it doesn't say he created the leopard and the bear and the, and the monkeys and the... Right? It doesn't say that. But there's one, one animal that the Bible goes out of its way to tell us that he created. If you look in, in, uh, on, day, on day 5, in verse 20... Creepy, crawly things should come out of the, out of the sky. He created the great sea monsters. The only thing that's specifically mentioned are the sea monsters. And many of the modern writers have pointed out, because in the ancient Near Eastern world, the sea monsters were the most powerful, almost demigods, if not gods. And this idea here, the Bible uses the verb vayivra, which it doesn't use except on the first day and on creation of human being. God doesn't use that verb at all, except here in order to highlight that God is the author of the sea and God is the author of all the powers of the sea and God is the author of the... Of etc. And the same thing in Kriyat Yamsuf. Remember in Kriyat Yamsuf, in the splitting of the Red Sea. Remember what the rabbis talk about in the Midrash. It's really rooted in the Bible. Ra'ata shifcha al hayam ma'ashelo ra'a yechezkel ben buzi. That even the simple maidservant saw the revelation of God at the sea more than even yechezkel ben buzi. That's the Midrash even than the prophet Ezekiel. Somehow in the splitting of the sea, there was a manifestation of God's revelation, which is more intense than anything else. And in the book of Tehillim, if you look in, for example, again, we could quote dozens of examples, but I want to get to Tashlik. If you look in the book of Psalms, in the book of Psalms, so, for example, Psalm 74, page 1502, where the poet is asking God to once again, we're in big trouble, the enemy is on our heels, and we're asking God to be the God of old, just like he was at the, at the splitting of the sea. And so in verse 10, Admatai Elohim Yecharef Tsar, until when God does the foe blaspheme, why do you hold back your right hand? Which of course is a reference to Kriyat Yamsuf. Your right hand was stretched out to destroy. And then it has direct reference to the Shirat Hayam. But you God were my king in old. Poel Yeshuot you crushed, you drove back the sea with your might. You destroyed the heads of the sea monsters in the water. Now is that a reference to 
creation or is it a reference to the splitting of the sea or both? It's really both. Because when God did create Yamsuf, He once again destroyed the sea which could have been, which was seen by many as an independent force. Atari You smashed the head of the Leviathan. Titnenu you released the springs. You made the mighty rivers dry. So God is manifest in creation. And the greatest example of God's sovereign power is not the creation of the sun and not the creation of the creepy crawly things. It's the destruction of the sea and His sovereignty over the sea. So there's a very interesting leitmotif in Tanakh of number one, the idea that God is around or somehow more manifest or can be found around water. It's there. It's hidden there in our tradition. It's not so hidden. Number two, the idea that certainly the nations of the world believed that the sea monsters had power and could compete on the same playing field with God. And that God, if you want to see God showing He's number one and there's no other force in the world, you see it when God destroys the powers. And the powers, the greatest powers, are the powers of the sea. That's where God is most manifest, in His malchut, in His kingship. And that's where God can be found when you're praying to God. Very interesting. These are themes that appear in Tanakh. Now, we also know that in many, um, as, as um, I, again, I don't know what um, those who were here for uh, uh, Rachel, for Rachel Friedman's uh, shiur, she spoke about the Azazel. I don't know how deeply she got into some of the ancient Near Eastern stuff. And the fact that there's no doubt that alongside the kind of official religion that we, you know, kind of nice, normative, uh, pristine monotheism that all of us like to believe that we practice, alongside of that, just like you see in Tanakh, the Jews were bowing down to idols all the time, and they weren't such, you know, id you know, great people in terms of their religious uh, beliefs. There was a lot of syncretism, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So too there were probably a lot of beliefs that continued about the sea and about the powers of the sea and about spirits of the sea. Because if they're bowing down to the, to the Baal and the Asherah in the, in the Bible, you can be sure that they also had all kinds of what's called in Hebrew emunot tefelot, which is, uh, what's the best translation? Um, superstitions and beliefs in all kinds of powers. And you don't have to go very far. It says in Tanakh, in the middle of, of, of I, I don't know if uh, Mrs. Friedman spoke about this, take a look in the book of Vayikra. In the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, chapter, <coughs> chapter 17. So she talked about, that God, you know, that people were going, and for those who weren't here, on ch- in chapter, 17, uh, chapter 17, verse, page 247, so the Bible insists that you bring all your sacrifices in the desert to a central place of worship, to the tabernacle. And the Bible says, verse 5, 
למען אשר יביאו בני ישראל תזבחיהם אשר סומכים על פני השדה so that the Jewish people will bring what they're doing they should bring it to God and then it says in verse 7 ולא יזבחו עוד את זבחיהם לסעירים אשר הם זונים אחריהם so that they should no longer offer it to the goat demons after whom they stray the people even after a couple of months after seeing the revelation at Sinai even when Moses came back They were still involved in spirits, goat demons. It, these are stuff that's very hard for us to get rid of. Just like today, people kiss mezuzahs and they think the mezuzah has power and all kinds of things. And so, you know, we laugh at people going to goats, but people have all kinds of beliefs, red strings and bendels. And people believe in all kinds of powers. And, 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 and it's all... very real because people are looking for something to grasp onto and so it's not a big stretch to to recognize that alongside the kind of pristine sense there may have been um, realities of people who continue to believe that the sea itself either was itself a manifestation of God and God's power or God or a little bit more um, edgy, believed that there were spirits in the sea, and who knows what's going on. Given this background, let's take a look at Tashlich, as we, where it comes from, and possibly some of the issues around it in later times. Okay, so... Why was monotheism so Why was it so tough? Yeah, very tough. Understand? Look at Tanakh. Everybody's dancing around the eight. People don't. People like. Understand? You never look at why do people? Why do people want red strings and people they can break? People want. People want physical manifestations. They want some direct. Not. They're coming around. coming around right coming around so the right right sure and where keep passing I made 35 copies, so there should be enough. Is not enough? Please share. Here's another one. Okay. Okay, so let's go, let's do a little bit of uh, halachic history. Let's do a little bit of, let's do a little bit of halachic history. The, um, the first mention in our sources that we have uh, attested to, well, first let's start. The ritual of Tashlich does not appear neither in Tanakh as a ritual, as a specific ritual, neither does it appear in the Mishnah, neither does it appear in the Gemara, in the Talmud, neither does it appear in any Tanaitic literature, neither does it appear the way we do it Neither does it appear 
in Gaonic literature, neither does it appear in the Rambam, neither does it appear in the Rif, neither, it does not appear in any of the codes prior to the late 1300s. The first time that it's mentioned in print is in a, an Ashkenazic work that has a tremendous impact on Jewish law, the Maharil, Rav Yaakov of Cologne. Okay? Rav Yaakov of Cologne. But I want to show you something interesting. People sometimes forget to quote. I have in front of you two paragraphs. I want to start with the first paragraph. The first paragraph is not about Rosh Hashanah. It's about Yom Tov in general. Look at what people were doing. In Germany, in the late 1300s, okay, in places like Cologne and Mainz, etc. Amar Mari Segal, Ma Shenohagim Leilech Berosh Hashanah, excuse me, let me start with Rosh Hashanah and then I'll go back to, I, I, I'm sorry, I, that's the way I did it. Amar Mari Segal, this is, this is about Rosh Hashanah. Ma Shenohagim Leilech Berosh Hashanah Achar HaSeuda, the custom that people go right after the meal, not in the late afternoon, they go right after the meal, What's the source of it? Meaning, it was already an accepted custom in Germany by that time, and he's trying to find a rationale for this custom. Doesn't appear in the Talmud, doesn't appear in the Mishnah, doesn't appear in Tanakh. Why Mapitom that for the last hundreds of years in Germany we do this custom? So he comes up with a very interesting explanation. But this is the first person who ever suggests this. So he says, Mishum de'ita ba'midrash. Because it says in the Midrash, Zecher la'akeda. There's a very famous Midrash. Midrash says nothing about Tashlich. This is him using a Midrash about the Akeda, about the binding of Isaac, in order to explain the concept of Tashlich. It's not in the Midrash. It says, She'avar Avraham avinu benahar ad savaro. There's a famous Midrash, that even though it's not in the text, that Abraham was, went up the, the, as he was going to the Mount Moriah, that the water reached his neck, the Amar Hoshia Hashem Kibau Ma'imad Nafesh, and he therefore quoted a verse from the Psalms, and this water was the Satan. Interesting, Satan makes it in. Satan Nahar So he was the river was actually Satan. Again, Satan. Interesting. Satan is, of course, a representative of the forces of evil in the world. What exactly Satan is requires its own shi'ur, but there's no doubt that certainly in some people's mind there were forces, demonic forces, that exist in the world. The more that you are a rationalist, the more you're going to try to reinterpret these midrashim, that it's not really about, it's not some sort of real power or some demonic you know, sitra achra, to use Kabbalistic terms, um, you're going to say that it's, you know, all the obstacles in a person's life, all of a person's uh, negative instincts. The more you're a Kabbalist, you're going to talk about these things as real, concrete powers that emanated from the breaking of the vessels, the breaking of the klipot at the creation of the world. So, that's, you're going to be your take on this. So you see here, interestingly enough, keep this in the back pocket, the Mahari Segal, the, the Maharil, the great uh, Ashkenazic leader, he says that the source is because we're trying to, we're reinventing or re reenacting Abraham's trek where he was almost stopped by the Nahar, by the river, 
and the river was Satan, and somehow by going there, we somehow overcome the Satan, which is very interesting also, because a lot of stuff we do on Rosh Hashanah is about overcoming the Satan, right? We blow the shofar, etc., right? Our bevetas Satan. So Satan makes the forces are here. Question? Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, he's quoting Abraham. It's right. The midrash is putting the words of the psalmist in Abraham. Remember, for the midrash, there's no anachronism. Everybody lives in the same world. Okay. The midrash says it was the satan, or that's the midrash. That's the midrash. Yeah. The Amar and the Mari Segal says, He also used to do it. Meaning, clearly the custom amongst the German Jews was to take food to the river and throw food in the river, which is very interesting. What does that have to do with Abraham going to the Akedah? Where does that come from? What is, Abraham doesn't bring any food. There's no sandwiches on the way in the Akedah story. Okay, there is absolutely... But here, somehow food gets in. Where did that come from? Throwing food. Kedei el hadagim to throw to the fish. And he says you shouldn't do it. Because there's chilu yom tov. It's violating the yom tov. Why is exactly violating the yom tov is a good question. I'm not going into the details of that. All I can tell you is it's very clear that the people in Germany were bringing food to the waters, especially not just to the waters, but to the fish. Somehow very important to have fish there to eat up the food. So this is the first mention we have. Late 1300s, maybe 1380s, 1390s, where you find it in print. What's fascinating to me is that you have a couple of a couple of pages later, when he's talking not about Rosh Hashanah, but he's talking about Yontav in general, the holidays in general, I mean Shavuos and Pesach. This is what he says. Amar Mahari Segal, Hani Bnei Adam HaHolchim B'Yom Tov L'Tayel Eitzel Neharot V'Yaorim The people who go on Yontav to take a, 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 a stroll by the rivers to see the fish that are swimming they're doing two bad things now again I'm not interested in why he doesn't like the custom but it's fascinating in Germany of the late 1300s people are doing Tashlich not just on Rosh Hashanah. They're doing Tashlich every Yontif. They're going to the river with food and finding a, a body of water with fish and they're throwing it. Fascinating. Now is it, again, I'm not, we don't know, we don't have enough history, enough sources. Did the people take the custom that originated on Rosh Hashanah and then transferred over to the other Yomim Tovim, to the other holidays? Or was it a general custom on the holidays, which then only lasted forever on Rosh Hashanah? I don't have the answer to that. 
But it is interesting that the people felt that the, all the other holidays also are worthy to do this interesting custom of taking food to the rivers to throw it into the river. Very interesting. Now, the truth is that, as I said, this explanation that it somehow has to do with reenacting Abraham, and notice there's no mention of casting off sins. Notice in the Maharil, the first mention of it is a fascinating thing, but there's no mention of sins. And this Midrash doesn't mention sins. This Midrash also doesn't mention why you're taking food. It doesn't fit well. This is a, again, when you study history of halacha and history of minhagim, history of customs, you have to ask yourself, this custom was around a long time. This seems very much like a post facto explanation of something that was real and somehow now, and also, what does the Akedah have to do with Shavuos? The Akedah, because in Jewish tradition the binding of Isaac happened on Rosh Hashanah, I can somehow connect it to Rosh Hashanah. But what does it have to do with Pesach and Shavuos? Nothing. There's something forced about this explanation of the Maharil. And what's interesting is you don't find it in many other sources because it is a kind of post facto. And I think, and many others think, that there's a hidden reason he's not really comfortable with. When you're not comfortable with the real reason of a custom, you give it a new interpretation. We do that all the time. Right? Don't we do that all the time with like Sa'ir Lazazel and other things? We, we give it all kinds of new spins to make it more acceptable to us. Or just like we do with, with, un, with the difficult liturgy. Like Shalawasani Isha. So we try to reinterpret it so that we can live with it. Or many other things that we have in our liturgy. We, re, we, re give, we give it a, another spin. I think there's something going on here that Maharil was uncomfortable with about Tashlich. Now, let's go further. Here's another example of a reinterpretation. Again, no mention of the sins. What do I mean? Isn't this about going... Isn't this about sins? I mean, the psukim, which are quoted... If you look in the old Machzorim already in the 14th... I'm sorry, the 15th and 16th century, they're all quoting the verses we started with about God, about throwing your sins into the sea. Otherwise, it makes... That's where the word Tashlich comes from. It comes from the Pasuk, the verse in Micah, in Micha. Tashlich b'mitzulot yam kol avonotenu. That you will help throw all the sins. Somehow the food and the throwing have to be associated with sin. But somehow the Maharil doesn't know from that. There's no sin. There's no throwing. There's no nothing. What does Avram... Does Avram throw anything in the Midrash? He doesn't throw anything. The only thing that's interesting in the Midrash is the Satan. Satan is there. Very interesting. Let's continue. When you get to the Ramah, the Ramah is Ramosha Israelish, the right, the major, the major writer of Ashkenaz, codifier of Ashkenazic law. But I'm not quoting from the Shulchan Aruch, from his commentary on the Shulchan. Aruch. I'm quoting from a much less known work, which is his work in philosophy. In the Shulchan Aruch, he just says there's a custom to do Tashlich and say these words. He doesn't give any explanation. But when he, in his philosophical work called Torat HaOlah. He says as follows. I'm going to translate. Minhag, there's nothing in English. Minhag shal Yisrael Torahi. We say that we should throw all our sins into the into the sea. When you go 
and you contemplate the depths of the sea, you think about the creation of the world. Because the depths of the sea are the tahom. And that's the deepest. When it comes to the nature, the world should be covered according to strict nature, his understanding of physics. The world should really be covered just by water, like it was the first day of creation. It should go down. The water should cover the whole world. God created the world for the human beings. So, according to him, when you go and contemplate the world, you're engaging in uh, the water, you're engaging in philosophy. It's also a very interesting take. So if you're engaging in philosophy, what do I need to schlep a peckle of, of, of challah rolls? And why do I need to throw out my sins? And I, Again, this is an explanation of a philosophical take on an existing ritual which you're reinterpreting in order to make it more palatable to a more rationalistic mindset. Because there's something troubling about the original understanding of it. And where does the original understanding come? I mentioned to you before that the... There is no mention in the Talmud and there is no mention in the Mishnah of what we call Tashlich. But there is an echo of a ritual which sounds a lot like Tashlich and sounds a lot like Kaparos. Everyone will hear of Kaparos? You know, the swinging the chicken and swing, or swinging the money, which is also a very problematic ritual for many reasons. The Gemara and Shabbos, and it, it, it appears in a little Rashi in the Gemara and Shabbos. The Gemara and Shabbos is discussing a, a custom. It's Daf Pei Aleph. I have it on the page right here. Daf Pei Aleph Amudav. I'm sorry if I didn't write it down. 81A in the folio. The Gemara discusses a ritual which in Babylonian Aramaic is called Parfisia. We don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but Rashi here cites an amazing, amazing comment. What is High Farfisa? Everybody see it? Where yeah. I put the little, um, the little, uh, little uh, parenthesis bracket. Hi Farfisa. What's a Farfisa? Atzitz Nakuv Shezar Ubo. This refers to a, a plant, a, a plant which on the bottom has a hole in it, a potted plant, which you planted into the ground. But then he quotes a different interpretation. Ge'onim Matsati. In the responsa of the Ge'onim, meaning Rashi here is quoting something that prior to him, Maybe a hundred years prior, Rashi lived 1040, he was born. The Gaonic period ended around that time, 1000, 1040. So Rashi's quoting something. Now we don't know how ancient it is. Maybe a hundred years old, 200 years old, three. Rashi cites as follows. With Chuvata Gaonim Matsati, I found. Sha'osin Chotalot make Kapot Tmarim. They used to make baskets out of Kapot Tmarim. Kapot Tmarim are lulav, date palm branches. You fill it up with 
with garbage to line it. Twenty-two or fifteen days before Rosh Hashanah, Osim Kol Echad Veechad Lasham Kol Katanu you put in it some you um, plant in this soil it's basically you've fertilized so you've created a kind of big potted plant which you fertilize and after a certain point it sprouts Erev Rosh Hashanah Notel kol echad shelo, and on erev Rosh Hashanah, each one takes his basket. You do seven times. You say this is in place of this, and this is in place of that. Then you throw this thing into the sea. It's kaparos and tashlich together. Yeah, yeah, correct. The sources of many of the things you've done didn't start with art scroll. We have here. Uh, this is this is a different understanding. Not a different. If you study history honestly and Jewish traditions honestly, you see here that there was a very strange custom that they used to do, and they called it farfisa. Now farfisa, what is farfisa? Farfisa actually. Is an, Ara- is an Aramaic, a Persian Aramaic corruption <coughs> of a Latin word. You put a dugage here, it's far, because when you spell it, it's really probably parpizio. Propitio. Do you know what that means? What's to propitiate? What's to propitiate in English? No. It means to offer a sacrifice. I propitiate God. I, I, I beseech God. That's what the word means, to propitiate. I'm making, I'm appeasing God or somebody else. I make propitiate. I don't know even know what the full verb is. Okay? Propitiate. I am making some sort of offering to propitiate, to appease. Who am I appeasing? Who am I, what am I doing here? There's no doubt that there's some element here of <coughs> propitiation of offering either to God, I hope, whatever that means, or to the Spirit, or something. There's something in its roots here that are very, very interesting. Now, if we turn... It's in the context, it's discussing, if you look in the Gemara, it's talking about what, what you're allowed to carry on Shabbos, what you're not allowed to carry on Shabbos. So they talk about, they talk about a farfisa, so just it's an example of something that was very well known a parpisi this is the only place that it's mentioned uh, take a look you look in the sugi it doesn't matter the point is what this farpisa is okay now it's an amazing thing they did it Arab Rosh Hashanah now now if you look now if you look look at the second page it doesn't say correct it doesn't say but it's, but it's interesting that the name of the ritual that they did at some point in the Gaonic times, Gaonic times, is some sort of propitiary service. At least that's what they called it. Now what's interesting 
is, if you look at source number six here for a second, this is from an article on Tashlich by um, Jacob Lauterbach, who was a great scholar of rabbinic literature in the early part of the 20th century. So he cites, source six, he cites from a book that was written in 1665. It gives you a flavor of what Jews in different parts of the world were doing. This is written by a non-Jew. The present state of the Jews, more particularly relating to those of Barbary, okay, gives the following account. This is a uh, this is this is near um, near the territories of um, what's that island called near England where Sephardic Jews, um, not Corsica, <laughs> Gibraltar, places like that. I'm sorry. It's not near England. Right, what am I thinking? It was, oh, I'm sorry? I got it confused. It's, where is it near? Spain. Spain, Spain, Spain. So the Jews, the Jews have had a custom on this day, on New Year's Day, to run into the rivers. They don't just throw stuff into the rivers. In this, ter- in this area, the custom was the Jews themselves ran into the rivers and there to shake off their sins. If at this lustration they have had the good fortune to see a fish, they shake themselves lustily on purpose to load it with their sins, that it may swim away with them and be as the scapegoat of old, which carries the people's sins into the desert. You notice how this non-Jew understood very well, probably because he talked to Jews, and they understood very well what they were doing. What they were doing was a kind of minhagic, um, expansion of the Seir La'azazel ritual. What do we do on, on Yom Kippur? At least according to the simple sense of the text, you put the sins of the people on the goat, and the goat is sent off whatever La'azazel means. Now, one of the interpretations of La'azazel means it means the desert. But another interpretation is to some sort of spirit. Azazel spirit, which I'm sure Rachel spoke about. The goat demons. Now, the Ramban says, but it's not that we're actually offering a bribe to the goat demons on our own. God commanded us. But there's some sort of element of the sins that this propitiates, that this protects us, that somehow we're casting off our sins and sending it away to some other spirits. Let them take care of it. Some among them would have this repairing to the running water. Some among them say that the explanation is to be in memory of Abraham's being led by an evil spirit into a river where being in great danger of drowning he prayed to God in the river upon the sudden. So you see the, he quotes the other idea as well. But this business of of, 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 of the, of the uh, whatchamacallit, of seeing the fish is that the fish, it's very important that the fish carry it away. That's why it's so important to have fish there because it's symbolic of like the scapegoat, of like the Azael, the Seir, Laz- yes. Into the river, yeah. What do you mean wrong? Why would he be wrong? I mean, what? I mean, why do you, this is 1675. Why, he seems to understand very well. He gives you both explanations. He seems to know about the Medrash which he didn't learn Medrash. Obviously, he talked to Jews who explained to him what was going on. Did he find 
<laughs> yeah, it's just that we are, it's all, <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, let, let's continue. I'll, let's take a look. Just the, I think it's implicit in the Jewish source. It's not explicit, but, um, yeah, it's called Farfisa. That's the Jewish source. You don't need anything more. It's a Rashi and Shabbos. <laughs> Rashi and Shabbos says it, basically. That's the source. Take a, look at, take a look at the late 19th century, just to show you an example of someone who's uncomfortable with Tashlich. The Aruch HaShulchan. Aruch HaShulchan was Rabbi Chiel Michal Epstein from Navardic, which is in Russia. He was, he was from the tradition of the Lithuanians on the bottom of the page. He says, he's talking about Tashlich. He has two lines about Tashlich in his commentary. Now you should be aware that the Gra, the Vilnagon, did not do Tashlich. He was very opposed to Tashlich. And he said, I have my reasons, but I'm opposed to it. And probably the reasons were because he didn't like what it represented in terms of bordering on these, on these superstitious. And he writes, the Aruch HaShulchan, who comes from that tradition, writes, first of all, he says, it's not so modest. V'yaziru shelo yelchu nashim. The women shouldn't go because there may be a little bit of, you know, intermingling. Which is exactly what people... <laughs> today, people want to do this. Ubimakomot. What? That's not the mindset in 1880. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. And in a place where the women do go, Better that the men should stay at home. Because anyway, there are rabbis who are opposed to this ritual. And there are many who do not do Tashlich, especially in the Lithuanian world. Because of a reason that's well known to them. Notice, all like mysterious. He doesn't want to let on, probably because I think they're very conflicted. This is a very popular ritual amongst many simple Jews. You're going to burst the bubble. You're going to take away, and then you're going to put them in a situation of the classic mutavshu shogim valyumizid, and it's better that they, you know, they're going to do it anyway. And if they really fully understand what they're doing, and if you know, it's a problematic ritual, at least according to the more rationalists uh, amongst us. Now, it's interesting that the Kabbalists got closer in their interpretation to the original origins of Tashlich. So if you look, for example, in Source 5, Source 5, this is from the Shalah HaKadosh, from Rav Isaac Horovitz, one of the great Kabbalists. So he writes as follows. He starts, and then we'll read um, Lauderbach's explanation of the, the, the Zohar, or the, not the Zohar, the, what he's saying here. Od shamati remez gadol, v'nachon, ki holchim lamayim shiyesh bahem dagim. You have to go to water which has in it fish so the first thing is because the fish don't have eyelids ok they don't have eyelids 
fish don't have eyelids. They have eyes. Ve'enehem tamid pekuchot. Their eyes are always open. Kidei lehit orer eina pekicha dileila. To somehow bring up the eye, the the careful eye that's watching over us from above. Sharomez al rachamim gedolim, which somehow hints to the great mercies of God. There's some sort of Kabbalistic image here. What is he talking about? So turn the page. So turn the page. So Lauterbach explains. First of all, look at the bottom of the page. Lauterbach cites a number of late Midrashim. Thus we read in Midrash Avkir. Midrash Avkir is a late Midrash that's sometimes quoted in Yalkut Shimoni, if you've ever heard of Yalkut Shimoni. It's a book that's very popular in many Jewish circles. So Midrash Avkir is one of the sources, but it's a, probably a late Medrash, 1100, 1200. We read in Midrash Avkir that demons and evil spirits hide in the dark mountains and in the depths of the, Z, of the sea. In the Zohar, we are told that Zuzah and Azael, I'm sure Rachel spoke about, all these Kabbalistic sources that talk about Azazel as playing off the Azael who's known as one of the fallen angels in mystical Jewish literature I know that when we were kids we were all told that fallen angels is not a Jewish concept that's a false notion amongst the many other things that we're told as kids it's not a Jewish rationalistic concept it's true the Rambam doesn't hold from false angels but there's a whole world of, of tradition of Kabbalah of Jewish mysticism and Midrash and Hechalot literature and much else that did believe in what we call fallen angels. Um, and whether, you, whether I like it or I don't like it, whether I agree with it, it's part of, our, part of the reality of our tradition. Um, and so in these sources, in the Zohar, the revolting angels were cast down from heaven and bound with iron chains and kept down in the Tahom, in the abyss, which is in the bottom of the sea. According to another statement in the Zohar, Lilith, the queen of the demons, fled or was thrown into the deep sea where she still dwells, ready to harm people and to lead them astray. As a protection against her evil devices, there is prescribed an incantation containing in part the following words. Go back, go back to your place in the sea. The sea is roaring for you. Its waves are calling you. Samael, which is the Midrashic name for Satan, or Satan, himself was also thrown together with the Egyptians into the sea. If you look at the Zohar on Kriyas Yamsuf, on the splitting of the sea, it's not just the sea which is put down and the Egyptians, but the evil one himself is put down. Satan is identified with the depths of the sea. Now if you look on top, in explaining the Shalah HaKadosh, which we just read, in explaining this Kabbalistic uh, source. So, so he points out. Satan, uh, fifth line from the top. Satan, the Satan. Satan, who according to the Zohar is identical with the depths of the sea, is not the sovereign of the sea. He has no independent realms in the sea. So in the, in the mild Kabbalah, which is tempered, the more extreme kind of echoes which you find in late Midrashim about that the, you know, the, the spirits of the sea, etc. 
But in the Shalah, in the Shalah HaKadosh, he has no independent realm. This realm of the sea belongs to the heavenly powers, Gevura, or to the divine strict justice, Din, right? If you think about the Sfirot, the various um, emanations of God that is so central to the Kabbalistic worldview. So some of them are called Din, God in his wearing his justice robes, as opposed to God in his Gevura robes. Satan dwells in the very depths of the sea and occupies a very low position. Figuratively speaking, he represents the lowest part of the sea. He is the dross of the silver, the dregs of the sea. But the sea itself symbolizes the heavenly power. Satan has no power whatsoever except the little support of strength which he draws from the deen, from the aspect of God's justice. That is to say, the divine attribute of strict justice cannot refuse to listen to the malicious accusations of Satan when he can actually point to the sins of the people. In other words, justice supports the accuser when he can prove his accusations. Now, by reciting the incantation and the special verses, we are successful in our appeal to the divine attribute of justice. Strict justice relaxes, as it were, becomes softened and sweetened, does not so readily yield to the demands of Satan, does not accept his accusations, and rather withdraws the support from Satan. Justice can honestly do so due to another effect of the recitation. Satan becomes actually unable to substantiate his charges, etc. The recitation of the prayers accompanied by sincere repentance rids us of our sins and of their effects, those evil spirits which cling to us as a result of our sins. So in this version, in the Shalah HaKadosh, so Tashlich is a kind of ceremony where we sort of try to, as he uses the term Le'orer, to um, bring up the qualities of God's mercy to temper God's justice, which is what we do all the time on Rosh Hashanah. We even use that term. We, if you look at the liturgy carefully, you'll see we talk about how we will seduce God. Bashofar afatenu, I will seduce God with the shofar and cause him to sweeten, that's what we say, shana tova umituka. What's mituka? Not just have honey. It's to sweeten the, that which we have been, the aspect of God's judgment should now be softened and sweetened into aspects of God's mercy, should be tempered with mercy. And therefore, the accuser, the Satan, will not be able to accuse us. If you look in the liturgy of, uh, of a machzer, all over the machzer, right before we blow shofar, we have the acrostic, kra Satan, you know, smash Satan, okay? It's, it, it's, just, it's, 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 it's just overflowing, especially in the Ashkenazic machzer, which, where this was so real, there was a reality of spirits and the reality of the evil. Now, of course, today we don't, we're very uncomfortable with that in our more, uh, even though, you know, I don't know anymore today, you know, you have 30,000 people going to Uman, so for Rosh Hashanah, leaving their families, maybe uh, we're not as rationalistic as, uh, as we thought in terms of people are very into uh, all kinds of things that I, you know, I, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't think, you know, people are so into, but it's a reality, but what you see here is, you know, Tashlich um, probably had its roots in some sort of Gilgul, <laughs> some sort of a reincarnation of the Propitio uh, ceremony, which was some sort of either bringing some sort of, you know, Korban to Hashem in the more, um, in the more uh, rationalist way, 
or offering some sort of bribe to the demons, like one interpretation of the Seir Lazazel, of the scapegoat ritual in some of the Midrashim, that we somehow bribe Satan and say, you know, you can keep these forces, they're yours. Or it was seen already as a kind of, it's already been demystified by, who knows why. But Tashlich probably started as an outgrowth of this. And then different people gave it different spins. Um, some who were more comfortable with its you know, le- less rationalistic origins you know, were dealt with it. Others who were less comfortable gave it a new interpretation, whether as a reference to Avraham and the Akedah, whether as it reminds us of, uh, of uh, creation, like the, like the Ramah said, or others interpret it in a different way. That's what happened. Yes, question. Javi. Why is it Christian or Catholic? Well, the, it's only Christian or Catholic because we've well, become that's so... That's the question. Maybe, maybe that's what bothered some people about it because it became associated. But again, but that, you know, that's, 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 that's true that certain things, you know, take on certain things. But, you know, it's not necessarily, it's only our skewed, you know, reading of history. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. That, that calls... Right. Certainly, it was dumbed down, but the idea that all you had to do was show up and say, and actually, my father said the prayers, and I just had to throw, and then you were done. Obviously, it's not the whole story, but that sort of that always bothered me. Correct. And I think it continues to bother some people about Tashlik. That's why, look, the Aruch Hashulchan says that in Russia, right in Lithuania. I mean, you know, the joke, the joke that I grew up with. Because all my rabbi and all my teachers were very Lithuanian and they always poo-pooed Tashla. First of all, they said you shouldn't go there because there's going to be boys and girls. God forbid, you know. You know. It's like I still remember when I was in high school. So I had a Rebbe who was very, very yeshivish and he told us we shouldn't go to the Soviet Jewry rally because you may, you know, you may, I remember that. And you may, you may mix and you may... My sister, Alea Shalom, found her husband at the Soviet Jewry rally. So, <laughs> it's a great thing. Halavai. I wish I gotten married earlier in my life. I wish. And now we talk about a Shidduch crisis. Halavai, everyone should go to the Soviet Jewry. Everyone should meet at the Soviet Jewry rally. Right. So, so, so one second, let me just finish. So I think it is, I think in the, so I was saying in the Lithuanian tradition, so they used to make fun of Tashlich. And they would say, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I do it in my bathroom, you know, on, on, you know, on Motsei Rosh Hashanah or something like that. They would, they would flush that, you know, or in my sink. They didn't take it correct because I think, now, I don't know if they, they didn't know all this history about it, but something about it rubbed them the wrong way. Just like Kaparos, you know, the Lithuanians looked very down on it. Not to, and not because they were big environmentalists, you know, and, you know, and Greenpeace about caring for the chickens. They didn't care about the chickens. They cared about that it looked very, you know, darke ha'emori, what's called in the Gemara. It looked like superstitious practices, and it moves away from the kind of more pristine um, monotheism that is the legacy of the Rambam and others like that. And so they would be very, just like they take out a lot of the piyutim on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. We today, even in Drisha, we say many fewer piyutim that are, that are, are in the Machzor. And much of the reason why we don't say them, at least some of them, is because many of the Lithuanian yeshivot, which we are a product of, 
uh, not, not, not physically, but spiritually, um, they had a lot of problems with a lot of the language. So, for example, that beautiful song, Machnisei Rachamim, is theologically very problematic. You're praying to an angel to bring your prayers to God. And the Lithuanians said, this is, this is untenable. It goes against the eighth, I'm sorry, the sixth principle of, of, of Rambam, that you're not supposed to pray to anybody except for God. So, yeah, there's a lot of the liturgy that they would be very uncomfortable with. Um, you know, and, and certainly um, extra liturgy. You know, the piyutim, they said, you know, very few of these piyutim. Or at the end of Yom Kippur, when you, you turn to the midah, you turn to the shloshesrei midos, you turn to the 13 principles of mercy and ask them to pray on your behalf before God. The Lithuanians left that out because they said, what is this? You can only pray to God. You can't pray to a midah, to a, to a quality or a spirit to pray to God on your behalf. That's crazy. Right, correct. But it doesn't fit. Right. The problem is, if you say it, it doesn't actually fit into the, the original miktzav, the original, um, what's it called? What's miktzav? Rhythm and meter of the, of the poem, the religious poem. But, you know, the Jews of Middle Evil Europe believed very much in things that may, may make us, you know, uncomfortable. But, and like you said, and they have certain... It, it sounds much more Christian to us. But that's also words and, you know, like if I said the word resurrection here, everyone thinks of Jesus. But it's not, it's just the English translation of triatameitim, which is, sounds very Jewish, right? But, yes. Depends who you are. <laughs> the Rambam didn't say that. So, a lot of things are in the Siddur. In the Siddur, it also says, L'shem Yichud Kutshebrichu, lots of Jews, which only was instituted by the Kabbalists. In the Siddur is also Kabbalah Shabbos. Kabbalah Shabbos is only 400 years old. It didn't exist before that. So, just because it's in the Siddur doesn't mean that it's sacrosanct. Angiology, right, but, for, but angiology is very big. Yes, I'm, all I'm saying is that, yeah, the sitter is a product of much more, is much less uh, pristine in its monotheism than, uh, than, let's say, a work like the Guide for the Perplexed, <laughs> right? The sitter reflects what, what Jews historically, and certainly Jews in... The, the, you know, the machzor and represent what s simple Jews and great Jews believed and davened. Okay? But yeah, it's different than what it says in, uh, yeah, in many other places. Okay, I wish everybody a uh, wonderful Rosh Hashanah and a meaningful uh, and a Tivavachatimatova.